Let's read. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Paul says this to the Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he... As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man death came, by one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, that he is accepted who has put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that God, you are all in all. And we thank you, Father God, for the precious gospel that Paul preached. It is the gospel that the apostles preached. It's the gospel that Christ preached. It's the gospel that the Old Testament prophets preached. It's the gospel that all faithful ministers for 2,000 years have preached. It's the gospel that we preach. It's the gospel we were saved. It's the gospel we stand in, Father God. It's the gospel we hope in, Father. We thank you that according to the scriptures, Christ not just died, but he rose again from the dead. We thank you, Father God, that our salvation is rooted deep in the Hebrew Bible, Father God, which is the Bible of your Son. 
We thank you, Father God, for the historical witness of the resurrection. We thank you that the prophets prophesied of the resurrection. And Father God, we thank you that Jesus taught us, blessed are those who do not see but believe. We thank you for our spiritual resurrection, Father God, that our heart knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the grave is truly empty and that Christ the King came out victorious on that day, Father God. And by his loving kindness towards us and following your will, Father God, death, Satan, and sin, the great enemies of the universe, Father God, have been swallowed up in the victory of Christ's death and resurrection, Father God. If we have truly been born again into a living hope, Lord God, no matter what life throws at us, Father God, even the most fearful of it all, death, death has been swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? It is truly swallowed up in Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless God. As we can see here, we will be speaking about the resurrection. And we're going to concentrate our study today on the resurrection from Paul's defense of it in, in chapter 15. I didn't read all of it for time's sake, but I will be going through all of it over the next weeks. Uh, as I begin a new series on eschatology, I'm going to use this as I've been preparing to uh, launch out into end time things. Not so much what earth is going to look like at the end before Christ comes. We might touch upon that, but more what's our personal eschatology. What, what's in store for you and me? What does it mean to die in Christ? What does it mean when we bury a Christian man or a Christian woman? What does that mean? I mean... What is this theology we sing about, about heaven and the new earth? And what's it all about? What's the intermediate state? What actually happens to us when we die? We'll be investigating this. We'll be investigating what the new heaven and new earth is going to be. We're going to go venture into heaven and see what's prepared for us. It's a real hope. It's a living hope. God wants us to know it. God wants us to feast on it. God wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to meditate on it. And the more we know about it, you'll be surprised how much time you'll spend thinking about it. Because this life points to there has to be more. Every hardship we go through, all the trials we go through, just the pressure. Just the pressure of waking up and living sometimes. And and dealing with the responsibilities and accountabilities of, of just being on this earth. It just forces us sometimes to take a, to retreat into what the scriptures teach us and realize that something marvelous and wonderful is coming our way. Whether Christ comes and takes us or we go home to see him, it's a beautiful thing that Christians need to spend some time on. We're going to really investigate this in, out of this chapter over the next several weeks, but then we will move, move forward into more things uh, pertaining to you know, what happens to us when we die. that sound interesting? Good, I expect everybody to be here then. And I'll chase you down, and you'll really know sooner than later what happens to you when you're not here no more. We have our ways. All right? Praise God. It's nice to laugh, isn't it? But this chapter here, it, is a, it naturally flows from not just one of the most important, but it is a foundational doctrine in Scripture. And it's something that God really wants us to enjoy, to feast on. And the truth of the matter is we do experience resurrection life every day we live. Even if we think we're far from God, the, 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 the reality that we have a thought towards God is because of a resurrection. The reality is saying, oh God, I feel far from you and I miss you. Has anybody ever said that? Okay. 
That's because of the resurrection. Because it's real. And we've been truly born again of the Holy Spirit of God. And as Christ is the first fruits, we too will be following his footsteps. We have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. We have the pledge of the Holy Spirit. We have tasted of the heavenly gift. We have tasted of the powers of the ages to come. We know in our heart that it's all real. And it's on Easter we get to spend a little more time, or at least around this time of the year, to spend more spe- uh, specific time to investigate just the resurrection, how it applies to our life. And chapter 15 is just marvelous. It's 58, chapter, 58 verses of it. We can really sink our teeth into it. So, and we're going to go through this verse by verse. Not all today. I'm going to start today. Uh, maybe I'll make it through 10 verses. Maybe I'll make it through 20 verses. We'll see how we go along. Uh, it's very encouraging to our faith, but when we first start to read it, it really could be awkward at times. It really gets into some strange explanations of the seed being sown, but the thing that is reaped is not the thing that's sown. It could sound very awkward, but when we really just put our mind to it and our prayerful hearts to it, we really, it really starts to make sense. And it, There's so much encouraging power to our faith here, and we want to get into that. It really does possess power. Uh, namely, a living hope over death, and that believers have the guarantee of victory in their lives. You know, the world is looking for a guarantee of victory everywhere they go. Everywhere. The world has its own form of resurrection, it has its own form of eschatology. They don't have personal eschatology. They'll think, well, you know something? Uh, the human race will survive. We're going to seed what? The cosmos. We're going to send spaceships out there, and no matter what happens here on Earth, we're going to seed the universe. We're going to colonize the solar system. Scientists think this way. They really, because they don't, they can't come to the, the point of saying, you know, one day it's really going to be over. Human history ends. It's very hard for a human being to come to that point. But it does end, but not for you and me. Praise God. The resurrection is proof positive. It does not end for us. As Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? It has been swallowed up in Christ. Death is not just man's enemy, it is God's enemy. It was never meant to be. It's not part of the universe. It wasn't part of God's creation. It was part of the curse if sin enters into the human the human realm, then death was a consequence of rebellion against God. But Christ, the second Adam, has taken this upon himself. He's taken upon the rebellion. He's taken upon the death, the consequence of it, both not just the spiritual, but the physical. And it's important for us to know that. And it's not just our first death, but Christ has swallowed up our second death at Calvary. That when we stand before God, we do not have to fear the wages of sin. We do not have to fear the second death. We do have to go through the first death. But please let me encourage you. The first death is not suffering for the Christian. It really is a portal to eternal life. And as we grow and mature in our Christian faith, and the older we get, the sweeter that will taste. It's starting to taste very sweet to me. As my knees are starting to really go bad, my, everything is going bad. And I'm like, praise God, there's truly a resurrection body coming. In the interim, I'll get the new knee, I'll get the new hip. Whatever else they offer me, I'll take it. (laughs) We can have this growing, settled heart over this matter. Uh, The world 
doesn't approach death the way the Christian does. Now, I've been witnessing this for a long time. I share Christ. I, I like to share about, you know, when people throw their philosophies at me, and I just simply say, are you willing to die with that philosophy? Are you going to go to the grave with those thoughts about uh, reincarnation? Or this, what, this happy reunion, this picnic you're going to have with all your old loved ones. Do you want to go to the grave with that kind of teachings? That settle your heart at 2 o'clock in the morning when fear tries to grip you and you're worried about the concerns of life? Is that something that's really going to do it? Give me the resurrection any day. Give me the resurrection. The world approaches it with a nervous laughter. Uh, they approach it with, they just try to laugh it off but they cannot give it any real serious personal thought. But we can. This teaching should not be neglected, as it is a feast for the Christian's heart as much as it is for the mind. Something no cult, religion, philosophy could ever give. It's the center of all that we call our Christian faith. Without it, as Paul says, we're worse than the unbeliever, and we should be pitied of all men. In it, we have an understanding of our new bodies. In it, we have something that motivates us to right conduct, verse 34. Uh, in it, we have the power to stand strong and serve Christ, as verse 58 says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. It's for this reason we teach, we preach, and proclaim the resurrection. We do it unashamed in front of all people because it gives life to those who truly believe. But why does Paul write on this subject anyway? As verse 12 says, Are there some there that saying Christ is not raised from the dead or the dead are not resurrected? That's what brings this whole question into being. That's why we have this chapter. There were people in Corinth that were saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. They weren't questioning Christ's resurrection. They were questioning personal resurrection. They were questioning their own resurrection. They were caught up with, how can we be raised? We're dead. And Paul starts to answer this question, but he sees it as a serious threat to the Christian faith. So serious, he says, that if Christ is not raised, then neither are you or me. And we're pity men. We're believing of some kind of falsehood. We're misrepresenting God. This is a serious accusation against the Christian faith that has crept into Corinth. And, and what happened, what we have here, they, they knew something in the Greek culture called soul immortality. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. In the Greek thought... Uh, there was this dualism going on. There was this dichotomy between the soul or the spirit and the human body. To the Greek mind 2,000 years ago, and even to many cultures today, the body is evil. That's where all the base passions are. That's where sin originates. It's in the body. And if somehow the spirit could be liberated from this body of sin, then we go off into the happy hunting ground and we enjoy life. So the body was viewed as evil. That was the entity that needed to be dealt with. So why would God resurrect evil? We don't need the body. We're trying to get out of this thing. We want to move on to soul immortality. We want, we want to be liberated. And, and the Greek philosophers would say this from this body of death. 
So when Paul is preaching on the resurrection and there's people in this church now, and they were saying, how can it be? The body's no good. Let's get out of here once and for all. And Paul has to explain that we don't have that kind of thought. Understand something. In God's economy, the body is just as valuable as the soul. We're created in the image of God. Christians need to get this perspective. We will not be disembodied spirits roaming around on some kind of imaginary, abstract, theoretical new heaven and new earth. When Christ was raised from the dead, everything physical was redeemed by God. The whole universe is redeemed by God. The whole physical universe, which he called good, and when he put man in there, he called it very good, is redeemed in Christ. I will see every true born-again believer, from Abel and Adam and Eve on, I will see them eye to eye. I will embrace them. I will hug them. I will hear their testimony of God's grace in their life. I will hear it over and over. As I worship God, I worship Christ with all the Old Testament saints and every New Testament saint. I will hear them. I will see them. I will love them. They will love me in physical bodies. In a physical universe where God will be the center. As Paul says, all in all. No, we don't get caught up in some kind of soul uh, immortality. We don't get caught up in this sort of uh, reincarnation that really it's a great definition of nothing at all. It's a clear, defined, articulate reasoning that says, I haven't a clue. So I'll embrace this. I'll come back one day to purify. Purify? You don't even believe in sin. Then why do you purify? You're telling me there's something wrong? That you need to be purified? Are you telling me there's something broken that needs to be fixed? Could it be sin? Could it be rebellion against the creator? They can't go there. And that's when the smoke starts coming out. And the whole reason breaks down. But not for the Christian. As we get into these verses over the weeks to come. We can uh, divide the chapter as this. Verses 1 to 5 is resurrection preached. We'll cover a little bit of that today. Verses 6 to 11 is resurrection witnessed. Verses 12 to 19 is resurrection reasoning. That will probably be our main theme today. Verses 20 to 28 is resurrection power. Verses 29 to 34 is resurrection ethics. Verses 35 to 49 is resurrection anatomy. It's the DNA of the spiritual body. Verses 50 to 57 is resurrection victory. Christ has the last word. Not death, not sin, and not Satan. No philosophy, no religion, no cult. No politics, no science, no scientist has the last word. God has the last word. And verse 58 is resurrection Motivation. Let's turn to verses 1 to 5. Forgive me as I pull it back up. Now I would remind you, Paul says, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. 
and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. We see here, uh, in these verses, the resurrection of priests. Our salvation is rooted deep in the death and resurrection of Christ, as we need to grow in this great knowledge of both, not just in the death, but in the resurrection. God wants us to spend quality time. When Paul preached and the apostles preached, they spent quality preaching, teaching time as the main body of the truth that they preached to encourage the Christian. Their preaching, please, this is not to offend anybody, their preaching was never God loves you sort of approach. They came out and they said, Christ died for you according to the scriptures. That according to the scriptures, all men are dead in Adam. That all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ came in accordance to the scriptures and he died and he suffered and he bore the wrath of God on behalf of humanity. That whatever would turn to him would not perish but would have eternal life. And to prove it, God raised him from the dead by the spirit of holiness to show all men that Christ has atoned for sin. That's the way they preached. Now they were missionaries and they were evangelists and that's what they were called to preach. Every message throughout the year we believe here should have a tone to that either explicitly or implicitly. But be that as it may, the resurrection was a central body of Paul's preaching and all the apostles. Wherever they went, you could be sure that they were preaching the resurrection. There's nothing to be ashamed about. And understand something. How many people would just, if you took a poll, really believe in the resurrection? Think about the churches today. And if you really thought about it, everybody went to a church, Protestant, Roman Catholic, and really asked them to think about the resurrection. Think of how many answers you would. Think about the confusion. Today's society we live in, the culture is no worse off than it was 2,000 years ago. You can't reason through the resurrection and try to figure it out. It's something we believe by faith. That's where our salvation is, what Christ has done, and God proven it from the resurrection of the dead. So the resurrection should be part of what Paul says here, the full body of the preached word of God. Resurrection life and everything it stands for, that God is redeeming everything to himself and reconciling everything to himself is something that every Christian needs to not just know, but hear on a constant basis. Verses 6 to 11 talk about a resurrection witness. I want you to listen to this now as we go into these next six verses. After he appeared to Cephas in the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But Paul says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. 
and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all the other apostles, though it was not me ever, but it was the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, we preached, and so you believed. When we talk about the resurrection witness, I love this point because Paul depends greatly on the historical aspect of Christianity. I don't want you to miss that. Paul doesn't spiritualize the point. He's not, he's not caught up in some kind of theory. He's not caught up in, I'll preach and you make it out to be whatever you want it to be. You know, you figure it out. You know, you connect the dots and whatever you want it to be, it's yours. Paul doesn't get caught up in that. Christian history can stand on its own. It doesn't need to be manipulated. These converts never saw Christ. They never saw the resurrection. But like you and me, blessed are those who believe but do not see. Just on the historical value of it, Paul preached. Just by preaching it and being able to say 500 at one time saw him. Just by saying, I, who don't deserve it. I shouldn't be here. I'm the least, not of all the apostles. I'm the least of all men. I'm the worst and chiefest of sinners. I don't belong to be here. Christ has to be alive. If I'm preaching is what Paul is saying, then Christ must be merciful. I'm the least. I persecuted the church of Christ. On the historical, on the historical analysis alone, the gospel stands doesn't have to be manipulated. You don't have to sit down and keep someone up for 72 hours on Starbucks and say the resurrection took place. The resurrection took place. The resurrection took place. And get them to believe it through hypnosis or something. Just on a historical record, it stands. That's powerful. That is powerful. They didn't explain the resurrection They proclaimed the resurrection. If you're going to have to explain it for people to get into heaven, nobody's coming. But you proclaim it, and by faith, like the Corinthians, like you and me, people can apprehend it. As Paul said to the Galatians, Oh, you foolish Galatians, in whom eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. They never saw Christ. But the preaching was so valid, it was so clear. And it was witnessed so much by the power of the Holy Spirit that it was like they could see it themselves. That is an important point that our faith stands, it can stand alone just on a historical record. Period. There are great men, Josh McDowell is one man, who went, set out to disprove Christianity. But just as investigation of the record, along with other people, they were convinced that it's true. Alone on a historical Merit. That is important as Christians. Don't we try to skew around some of the issues because they're hard to explain? Don't. It's good enough for me that 500 people saw him at one time. It's good enough for me that Paul saw him, though he doesn't deserve it. It's good enough for me that the, the apostles saw it. It is good enough for me that I can sit here and proclaim to you that Christ is alive. I don't have to prove it. That's God's job. Verses 12 to 19 is resurrection reasoning. Resurrection reasoning. Now if Christ is proclaimed, listen to Paul's reason. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? A duh. 
<laughs> but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ is raised. Here's Paul, this is his reasoning. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testify about God that he's raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most are to be pitied. Resurrection reasoning. Hopefully you see how clear that is. (coughs) If it's not true then there's a lot of trouble to everything Christian. Christian history, the whole church of 2,000 years, stands or falls on the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. Anybody who fights us and who says, oh, you know, how can you know? Your men wrote that and we don't know, nobody was there. Many, have anybody heard, ever heard that? People refute us. You know, but they're the same ones going to another church and they're taking the body and the blood of the Lord. And I'm asking them, I'm saying, why are you buying going to church? What are you baptizing your children for? Why, why are you taking communion for? Why do anything? If Christ is not raised from the dead, get rid of it all. It's one gigantic, global, universal hoax. It either is or it is not. Period. And that's what Paul is saying. This whole section spells out clearly the natural breakdown of the whole Christian faith that the dead are not raised, not just Christ in some spiritual way, but in a real physical, tangible way. As 1 John says, we, we behold him, we've seen his glory, we've seen and touched the word of God, the resurrected word of God. Starting in verse 12, Paul begins to unravel the mess we would be in naturally. As he says, if Christ is not preached as raised from the dead, how can some say there is no resurrection of the dead? Everywhere a true apostle went, the resurrection was sure to go. Everywhere a true minister of the gospel goes, the resurrection is not far behind. Again, it's foundational to the Christian faith. It was a major component of their preaching. It always was, always will be. Listen to verse 13 and 14. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. A man's faith was only as good as what? The message he believed in. I've shared this before. Many people are believing in trees, and clouds, and reincarnation, and some kind of anything. But that faith is not, well, as long as you have faith, everything's okay. No, you're dead in that faith. It's no good for you. Faith is only as good as the object we put our faith in. We put our object into the message of the cross and what Christ has done for us. That's why our faith is real. It's alive. It's everlasting. It brings us into eternity. It makes us right with God. We're justified and have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What makes faith valid is the message that's believed. No matter how sincere a person believes, it's in vain. It's worthless if it's not true. All our prayers, all our tears, all our giving, all our encouragement, all our labors, all our hope, 
Everything I've been living for for 24 years, everything that's brought me to tears, everything that's changed my heart, every time I, I recognize I've sinned against God and my, I find myself in tears and asking God for mercy and to change my heart, it's all in vain. What's been, who's been speaking to me all these years? Are we doing this in hope to be saved because if I'm good enough and I preach it loud enough, I'll be saved? Of course not. We know in our heart it's true. There's nothing in vain. Because it is true. Many spiritual people, quote unquote. Listen, the world could never call themselves out as Paul does here. Don't miss this point. How many people would call out their religion and say, you know something, if, it's, if this is not true, it's all worthless. And I've been deceived all my life. How many religious, really devout religious people, could they could be from some kind of Christian uh, persuasion or, or Islam or something else? You would never hear people saying, well, you know, maybe it's not true. They, they can't come to grasp that concept. But Paul knows it. Paul's saying, if it's not true, then it's worthless. Let's go home. We should be pitied. The reasoning is spot on. It's clear, it's transparent, and it's filled with integrity if Christ is not raised from the dead. Then we have no hope. Listen to verse 15. Not just that, he says, we, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Listen to Paul's integrity. Because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. To Paul, the thought of preaching anything other than the truth of God was blasphemous. Anything. The thought of misrepresenting God, that equals a a false apostle. To misrepresent God was the furthest thought from Paul and the apostles' mind. They, They would not open up their mouth if they thought that something they were saying was misrepresenting God in Anyway, so much so that Paul, even after preaching for 14 years, went up to Jerusalem and said, he grabbed the apostles and he said, I just want to lay before you what I've been preaching to the Gentiles. Just want to make sure that what I've preached is right. And he shared the gospel message. And of course he was right on. The thought of misrepresenting God. Could you imagine everybody that preached Christ would have this kind of integrity and heart? They should, and we should. We should make sure that everything we say about Christ, that the pulpit is never stained by ever, minutely, misrepresenting Christ. Do we not realize the serious nature of that crime? And there's only one way we can do it. I am not an apostle. John is not an apostle. Nobody is an apostle. We don't speak on the inspiration of the Spirit of God like that. No. We can do it because we are in transparent relationship with one another. And we want people to weigh in on what we're teaching to make sure we are always right. It's called theological integrity. The pulpit is always open for someone to say, you know something, I'm not sure about that point, Pastor. Could you clarify that? 
Is that what the scriptures teach? Is that what God teaches? Is that what the apostles teach? Is that what we believe here? That's quite all right. That's part of making sure we don't do what? Error. That's right. Error and misrepresent God. This is good, good advice to anyone who seeks to preach God's word. What a horrible conclusion for Paul. The thought of misrepresenting God. Verse 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. We're still in that section of resurrection reasoning. These verses go to validate what happened on Good Friday, and I don't want anybody to miss this. We know that Christ suffered and died according to the Scriptures. We know that the penalty for our sins was on Calvary's cross. In those hours of Christ's suffering, that is when our sin debt was fully paid. Nowhere else. He didn't go to hell to pay for it. Uh, He didn't pay for it even in the resurrection. He paid for it at the cross. But these verses go to validate what happened on Friday. The power to save lies in the crucifixion. Your salvation fully relies on the crucified, broken, dead body of Christ. But the power to preach salvation lies in the resurrection. Don't miss that. You can't preach the crucifixion without preaching the resurrection. The power to preach lies in the fact, the historical fact, that God accepted the crucifixion in the resurrection. If I was to say, Christ died for your sins, you could say, how do I know? The tomb is empty. God raised them by the spirit of power of holiness. Proved to be the son of David. Understand something, please. Without a resurrection, we can look at each other at the cross and say, what really happened? I don't know. Maybe he was just a man. Maybe he was just a carpenter. Maybe he had grandiose ideas about himself and he persuaded people to follow him, but really raised himself from the dead? It's the resurrection that gives us, emboldens us, empowers us to preach the crucifixion. Paul knew this. We need to know that. Verse 18, 19. The those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've perished in their sins without hope in this life or the next. For... If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all men are most to be pitied. So real is this to Paul, that if it's not true, then the only conclusion we have is to be pitied. The word pity is only used twice in the New Testament. In Revelation 3, it's used as miserable. We're miserable. Hopeless. Miserable. No hope whatsoever. And it has in the context of Revelation and here a, 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 a bit of self-deception. In Revelation it says you think you're rich, you think you're profitable. But he goes, you're not. You're miserable, wretched, blind, and naked. Come and buy gold refined in a fire from me. You're deceiving yourself. You're miserable. You think you're, you're right with me, oh church, but you're not. And it's the same thing here. We're pitied. We're self-deceived. Self-deception runs rampant in human nature. 
we're predisposed to self-deception. And if the resurrection is not true, guess, take a look at your neighbor and say, you are one deceived human being. We're all deceived. We're all happily deceived here. We all say we're all deceived. We all drink the Kool-Aid. We're all deceived. If Christ has not been raised. Something has to keep us coming every Sunday. Amen. Amen. Something had to get me crying yesterday when I wasn't feeling good and I didn't like some things about myself. I guess I'm self-deceived. I'm under the power of self-deception. I, I want to be a better p- person. I want to be perfect like Christ because I'm under the power of self-deception. I hate sin because I'm under the power of self-deception. I hate my old life because I'm under the power of self-deception. I want to love people that's hard to love because I'm under the power of self-deception. I pick up the cross and crucify it daily because I'm under the power of self-deception. No! Not at all. I'm under the power and influence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> We're not to be pitied. We're to be praised. Christ is to be praised in the nations. Verses 20 and 21 will draw us up soon. But in Christ, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as, as by one man came death. By a man comes the resurrection of the dead. The first fruits, it's an Old Testament promise that points to the reality of a coming harvest. It's a down payment to something real that's right around the corner. Christ is the first fruits, not just of our salvation, but a new, transformed universe of which we are part of with our new, transformed human bodies, which we'll be speaking about in the weeks to come. Our spiritual resurrection, as Paul says in Ephesians, is a down payment, a deposit, a guarantee of heaven's reality. Paul moves beyond just witnessing verses 6 to 11. It moves beyond the logical breakdown of life and the sad conclusions in resurrection reasoning. He goes behind the scenes to where the resurrection is an integral part of restoring the whole universe back to its proper relation to God. Understand something. For Paul, the resurrection wasn't something, some kind of cute little tendon of the Christian faith. To Paul, it was the promise that what God said in the garden, that that the, 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 the seed will crush the serpent's head. That God was going to restore all things new again, as we said already. That there's truly a new heaven and a new earth. The old is totally passed away. The new has entered in. For Paul, it was just waiting for the second coming of Christ. with a new heaven and a new earth. Is this just all abstract thinking? Do Christians have a hard time allowing the resurrection and the fact of it to witness to their hearts and souls and encourage you? Do I need to take a show of hands and how many Christians have been encouraged by the fact of Christ's resurrection? Do I need to have a show of hands and say how many people have really thought about it, even in this week? How many people give it a proper time? How many Christians have thought about it? Well, here's a good answer. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on the Holy Spirit. And we're really living it every day. Every day we wake up and thank Christ, it's because of the witness of the Holy Spirit in the new heaven and new earth that's coming in us. This is a down payment. Understand something. 
As some famous books say today, your best life is now. It is not. It's in the future when Christ comes back and everything in us is crying out for something greater than this world. Everything. Because no matter how good life can get now, how many people want a better life? Amen. Okay. I mean, I want a better life. Don't, don't get me wrong. But can I just bring it down to earth a little bit? Don't yell at me. There'll always be sickness to be concerned about. There'll always be backslidden people in our life. There'll always be apprehensions in life. There'll always be what's the future lie ahead. Whether it's employment, whether it's finances, whether it's health, whether it's any amount of circumstances, there's always something in there that's trying to rain on what? Our parade. I can't tell you how wonderful your life is going to be in the next 20 years. I don't have the authority to say that. But I can tell you by God's grace, you can enjoy life, you can embrace it, and you can look forward to a new heaven. And with that, I can promise you. Let's close. The hidden beauty of this, this faith, of this doctrine, Paul in his whole chapter on the resurrection never appeals, listen to this, ever. 58 verses. He never appeals to emotions. He never appeals to subjective feelings in defense of the resurrection. This is important. At the end of the day, the Christian faith is not a movement built on smoke and mirrors. It's not a horse and pony show. It's not by manipulating people with their primal fears about life. No, it's on God's very own power and wisdom to restore this world of which we are part of now. It's logical. It's relevant. It meets the needs of the mind as much as the emotions. It alone has the power to bring meaning out of this meaningless existence. Reason to pursue a life of virtue in this moral wilderness. Otherwise, as Paul says, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for everything you've done in the resurrection of your son. We thank you for our spiritual resurrections, Father God. We thank you, Father God, that's superimposed above every day we live is the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. We thank you, Father God, and we ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that this becomes more real in our life. Every day we get closer to you, God. That our best life now, as we embrace our best life tomorrow with you, God, as we pick up our cross on a daily basis, Father God, and we desire to please you in all we do, Father God, as Paul teaches us, let us look up where Christ is seated and not on things below, Father God. Help us in this endeavor, Father God, to receive and to enjoy the rich inheritance that you have for us, Father God, in the historical resurrection of your Son.